I'm Yulia Melnik, and this is Talking Substance, where we're going to be doing just that. And we're coming up on the anniversary of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and there is no better time than now to talk about it. There has been so much that happened in the past two years. There have been lots of victories, but also lots of letdowns. And today is the best day to reflect on everything that has happened in these past two years so far. Everyone is wondering what's next. But I think in order to figure out what's next, we need to look at everything that had already happened. And we're going to be doing just that with our guest today, Peter Dickinson, who is the editor for the Atlantic Council and the publisher of Lviv Today and Business Ukraine magazines. Hi, Yulia. Were you here when the uh, full-scale invasion started? Were you in Kyiv or...? Yes, we were in Kyiv then. That was, uh, we, we left that morning. Uh, we were here. So in the, in the build-up to the full-scale invasion, of course, we were having, as everybody, having this, this uh, you know, the, all, the, all the warnings and then the recommendations from the embassy to leave. And uh, the whole time when that was going on, uh, my perception was that something was going to happen, but I anticipated that it would be perhaps a limited military operation, you know, some sort of attack, some sort of um, East Ukraine, in the Donbass area. Uh, and I, we said from, from, from day one, really, of that whole, of the building up of the crisis, if there is a full-scale invasion, then, then we will have to leave. I have two children, and uh, mm -hmm. I also would, would not feel that my position as, as, a, as a member of the international uh, media community and uh, working with the Atlantic Council, would have, I would have been safe. I've, I've since been sanctioned by the Russians as well. So um, it wasn't an option at the time to stay but as soon as Kiev was liberated then we began to look to come back and we, we came back in the summer of 2022 and have, have been back ever since. Nice um, how do you feel so I mean I, I wanted to kind of know because you probably stayed in touch with your colleagues and with your friends back in the UK how do you feel the mood was before the full-scale invasion whether people in the UK thought it would happen and do you feel like the reaction was appropriate? Uh, I don't. I honestly can't say that there was that much awareness in the UK. Of mm -hmm. course, there was a you know those those who were involved in the security sphere, those who were taking interest in geopolitics, or this part of the world. Of course, were very very much focused on the on the build up. But in general, it was. Um, you know they'd be also been sort of inundated with news of of russian aggression and from from 2014 onwards from uh, the, the siege yeah. of crimea east ukraine and so there was i think also a sense of like oh here we go again you know what, what what's going on this time it wasn't a, a totally unprecedented situation i think once the invasion had taken place and, and the enormity of the situation sort of began to dawn on people then there was a very big reaction from from yeah. the public and the, uh, the political sector but especially the public um i think the the uk was not exceptional in that case. Perhaps it was particularly strong in the UK, but it was, uh, I think it was a very broad based, again, where we were in the Czech Republic was also, you know, everywhere you went, there were Ukrainian flags, the, the Czechs yeah. couldn't do enough for us. And it was really, really overwhelming how much they were engaged and how, on a personal level, people wanted to come mm -hmm. out and sort of, you know, see how we were, see if they could do anything to help, see if they could do anything to support. I was very surprised at how the UK sort of took the lead with the Western countries, especially with NATO, with Bodro <laughs> coming to Ukraine as the coming to Kyiv as the first uh, world leader. Well, you know, British British perception, British sort of self-perception, the, the British identity is very much, uh, you know, the, this notion. I think, you know, foreigners look at Britain and they tend to focus very much on the British Empire and this 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 country that, that in, in the not-so-distant past, you know, ruled a large part of the world and has a very uh, sort of imperial mindset or certainly left their yeah. mark all over the world, language, sports, culture, you know, across the board. British people tend to see themselves much more, much smaller than that. Mm -hmm. And... Um, 
you know the the the, the defining moment of, of British history, certainly modern British history, is is the, is the Battle of Britain and World War Two and D Day, not D Day, rather, sorry, Dunkirk, and the the idea of Britain standing up as a sort of standing up for the for the for the underdog, standing up for the victim, and standing up to tyranny. So. Yeah. Putin's uh, arrival on the scene and his escalating aggression against Ukraine has been very much seen in that context by British people and certainly by Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson is a massive um, fan of uh, of uh, Winston Churchill and has always looked to to uh, emulate him. He wrote a, a biography of Winston Churchill uh, and has made no secret of the fact that that's his that's his model. So uh, for, for Boris Johnson in particular, this was his. Churchill moment and Putin was Hitler and for the British people in general that's the way it was perceived so I wasn't I mean I was very pleased by the reaction and, and uh, uh, but I wasn't totally surprised. Yeah it was interesting to observe Boris, Boris Johnson because he was like the right man at the right time right um, I felt very interesting observing how Ukrainians were sort of idealizing him and loving him so much and at home the reactions to him were not quite like that, especially during that turbulent uh, time. And then he started supporting Ukraine. And I guess his like reputation weaned off a little bit because everyone was supportive of him supporting Ukraine. But it was very interesting to observe the two very... <laughs> well, I mean, there, there, there was something, you know, there was, there was, you know, some people said it was a very, it was cynical in the sense that he was looking to distract from all his domestic problems, <laughs> which, and I'm sure there was an element of, of truth in that. But I think it was, it was quite sincere in the sense that this is how he's always seen himself. And this was his, this was his big moment of truth. Yeah. you know um and his position on ukraine was very popular but at the same time the british people were able to sort of detach the two things and say okay ukraine great that's the right thing to do mm -hmm. we, we support that and, and, and we welcome that but you know all the other stuff like not so much yeah but that's the thing i, I vividly remember how ukrainians were so sad when <laughs> boris johnson left and they didn't understand they did not, did not understand why en masse and i would just uh, look at twitter and look at all of these sad tweets and to me it was so funny because uh, ukrainians were saying that they would love to have boris johnson in uh, parliament here you know i i still wouldn't I, it wouldn't amaze me if he popped up here in some position somewhere it really wouldn't amaze me i think it would be something that would would, would appeal to him uh, down <laughs> the line we'll see but um yeah i think there was, there was certainly when he when he was when he was um removed when he was ousted there was yeah there was a widespread sense of oh my god what does this mean and, and i remember at the time doing a lot of ukrainian media um appearances and, and explaining to them it probably doesn't mean much you know because this is this is the the public position this is popular across the board politically yeah. and and uh you know whoever is in power in britain will be will be basically trying to out they'll be basically trying to outdo each other to see who can help ukraine more which is which has proved to be the case Rishi Sunak has, has tried to do more and uh, the opposition leader who's very likely to become the next prime minister has already been to Kiev yeah. to say, don't worry, I'm going to be the next prime minister and I will do even more. So I think <laughs> of all of the issues internationally that Ukraine faces, Britain's probably one of the least, least concerned. Oh, for sure. Britain has been like one of our strongest allies. There are soldiers, there are Ukrainian soldiers being trained in Britain and in France as well. But um, I think that British leaders are just a little stronger and more... And more um, straightforward than the current French president is. So, yeah, they, the support from UK has been immense. I also think that there are certain parallels. For instance, Ireland really supports Ukraine and uh, Scotland and Wales supports Ukraine. I know Ireland is not the UK, but in general, no. <laughs> your neighbors, because I feel like there is this sort of spirit of fighting for freedom that, that for instance, the Irish understand very well or... 
at least the idea of fighting for freedom, and so do the Welsh and the Scottish. So it's it's very interesting how the UK as a whole and Ireland also all sort of uh, draw some some parallel to Ukrainian struggle and can like sympathize with it and really want to help. Do you feel like the mood in the UK and all over the world is still as supportive of Ukraine as it was on day one? Well, I think it's interesting if we talk about uh, opinion, you know, the mood and the, the public mood. I mean, I think the shock, of course, has dissipated hugely. I mean, it's two years now. Yeah. You can't expect people to maintain that level of, of interest simply uh, and, and engagement. So I think certainly if we look at the media, the engagement's dropped off a lot, although it's still there and it's still, it's still, it's still on the front pages. You know, it was on the front pages every day. Now it's on front pages, say, every week. Yeah. Um, it's clearly dropped off. Uh, I think politically also there's a lot of other things that have come up that have created issues. But I think public opinion, uh, at least if we go by the, the sort of the polls that are coming out, it's still very high levels of support, surprisingly perhaps, in America, in the UK and, and in most of Europe. Uh, there seems to be pretty, you know, I would say remarkably consistently high levels of, 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 yeah. of recognition that this is something that's in their interest, that the West needs to support this and that they will continue to do it. So, um, you know... Politically, yeah, issues, media certainly, you know, attention spans are, are, are shifting and, and other things on the radar. But broadly speaking, I think there's still a lot, a lot of support. So we actually conducted a, a survey both in Washington and in Kyiv asking people, bypassers on the street, whether they think that support from the West to Ukraine needs to increase or decrease. And I wanted to show you these before we continue this conversation. So we're sort of on the same page about it. Well, I think that we have our own problems in this country. But I think if the Ukrainian conflict isn't taken care of, it could make th the world could get worse. But I also think that it's not necessarily our problem. The U.S. should increase their support of Ukraine. And this lousy Republican House Speaker ought to get off his butt and pass the bill. It's not very complicated. I like him. To be honest, when I was um, when I was uh, getting ready for this interview, I, my heart was beating out of my chest because, uh, as someone who's lived in America for 13 years, I was like, "Please don't say something bad. Please don't say something <laughs> bad." <laughs> but at the same time, I do want to point out that it's DC where um, people tend to be a little more democratic leaning. So. It's not that uncanny, and I feel like if we conducted this survey somewhere in Indiana, we would have a little more polarizing answers. But what stuck out to me is, well, first of all, thank you, everybody who supports Ukraine and who thinks that, uh, that the aid to Ukraine needs to increase. But there is a prevailing narrative uh, among the people who are not sure, who are on the fence, or who support Ukraine, but think that the war needs to end. And they all think that the negotiations table is the answer. And I see that a lot of people in the West don't understand why the only solution to end the war in Ukraine's favor, where Ukraine does not continue suffering, is on the battlefield. Could you maybe give us your perspective on why is it? that way well i mean i think we've got to take a few steps back here and and, and appreciate that most people in the west and i don't want to be they don't want to be dismissive but i think most people genuinely have very little understanding of what russia is and yeah. you know the, the fundamental idea that this is it's essentially an empire and vladimir putin's vision of russia is is imperial uh, and the war in ukraine is is part of that imperial uh, imperial agenda sure. and 
that's not the sort of thing that you can you can find a compromise on. I think if if you look at what Putin himself says, uh, you know, going if you go back 10, 15 years, Putin would would often talk about Ukrainians and Russians as one people, which essentially means that Ukrainians are Russians. So he would already he was saying then quite openly there is no Ukraine, but that's become a lot more explicit since the war began. Yeah. You know, we see now that. Um, the uh, the comments he makes about reclaiming Russian lands and, and historic Russian lands and that there, there, there was no Ukraine historically pointed at maps which say Ukraine on them um, <laughs> and um, you know, yeah. said Odessa is a Ukrainian city the whole south of Ukraine is Russian etc cetera, etc cetera. you know the, you know we could pull up dozens of examples where Putin very explicitly now says essentially there is no Ukraine it's Russia we're taking it back. Um, and then the actions of the Russian soldiers on the ground reflect that. You know, the Russians are coming in, they're wiping out Ukrainian identity, they're forcing people to take Russian passports, they're forcing kids to go to school and be indoctrinated, they're stealing children and sending them to, to indoctrination camps in, in Russia yeah. or in occupied territory where they're telling them there is no Ukraine, you're Russians now. Uh, you know, it, it's clear that this is, a, this, is a, this is a campaign to wipe out, to wipe Ukraine from the map, and to reincorporate the whole of Ukraine into Russia. Now, that's there's no middle ground there. There's no negotiation room there. And so from a Ukrainian point of view, it really makes very little sense to talk about negotiating with Putin about that because his position is very, is very clear and very maximalist. Uh, if he is stopped on some level now for you know, purely military necessity, let's say, uh, unless he's beaten to such an extent where he is, he is afraid to come back, he'll go further. So of that's course. the Ukrainian position. But I would say that it's not necessarily enough to, to explain that to international audiences because they may ultimately say, well, why do we care? You know, the cynical or, you know, sad as that may be, that's that's the reality. But I think then you've got to explain, well, he's not going to stop at Ukraine, is he? If, if, if reclaiming Ukrainian land is okay in his mind, and that's absolutely legitimate in his mind, why can't he reclaim other? You know, historically Russian lands, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then the list of countries becomes very long. You know, you can go, if, again, if you take the, the Soviet Union, that gives you another 10 or 12 countries. If you take the Russian Empire, you can add another two or three to that. You can add Poland to that list. You can add Finland to that list. Well, even if, if you take the Russian Empire, you can technically uh, add England to that list because the royal families and the familial connections between the royal families or sort of the very, very slim familial connection that was built there. So Russia might think that the UK belongs to Russia. Well, I don't know if I'd go, I wouldn't have to go that far in terms of dynastic claims, but, but certainly Alaska. It would Alaska, be on the board. Sure. Certainly Alaska would be, would be in Putin's worldview legitimate. And I think if, if you look at the... Um, if you look at the recent interview that he did, that Putin did with Tucker Carlson, I think that was a actually a very, very useful, um, very useful um, interview. I think he, Putin, you know, Tucker Carlson went into that interview very clearly trying to set Putin up to say, it's America's fault, it's NATO's yeah. fault. He, he, his, lead, his leading question was basically saying, okay, let's now blame America, let's now yeah. blame NATO. Putin didn't want to know. He said, you know, and off he went on his historical diatribe, lecturing him for half an hour, going back, you know, over a thousand years and laying out very clearly that for him, this war is about Russia's historic rights to reclaim what he thinks belongs to Russia. To Russia yeah. Again, and that is, that is uh, you know, that should, that should terrify uh, all Europeans because it means that their, their, their physical claims go far, far beyond the boundaries of Ukraine. And it's really, it's, it, it, we can't predict exactly what he'd do, but the idea that he could 
win in Ukraine, claim Ukraine, and then just stop is probably the least likely of any of the scenarios that are available at the moment. So this is the really important thing to stress, I think, to audiences. This is not about some border disputes or, or mm. uh, you know, this can't be resolved in a, in a simple negotiation about let's move the border here, let's move the border there, or let's have new status for Ukraine. This is about uh, the imperial ambitions of a man who is absolutely consumed by his own vision, his own historic mission, and his own belief, his own conviction that he's right. Well, he said multiple times that his um, sort of uh, his uh, person that he idealizes is Peter the First. I'm not going to call him the Great on purpose because there is nothing great about a man who rewrites history. <laughs> but um, if you look at it from that perspective, he wants to be Peter the First because Peter the First was one of those like great leaders of Russia that Russians look up to, who's um, built up Russia and reclaimed Russian lands. When in reality, he stole lands and rewrote history and renamed Muscovia to Russia. Uh, but that is why it's also so dangerous, because recently Putin has, uh, well, Russians, I suppose, or the Russian government has been put, uh, putting banners on borders with Finland and other countries that say the borders of Russia don't stop anywhere. And I think that that very well summarizes everything that you said, because they don't believe that there is any stopping for them unless they're stopped. And they have been doing this unpunished for so many years that who is to say that if Putin gets what he wants in Ukraine, which is technically the whole of Ukraine, he's not going to go further? Or how would you believe a man who who openly just disregards all of the international treaties and documents that have ever been signed by his country? Yeah, well, the, I guess that's the other issue, the idea of, of actually the, the value of any agreement with, with Vladimir Putin. Um, Russia has made n numerous agreements guaranteeing Ukraine's uh, independence, Ukraine's sovereignty, territorial integrity, etc. Obviously, the Budapest Memorandum, there mm. were a number of bilateral agreements. Uh, Putin is on record a number of times saying, hey, I have no interest in Crimea, I have no interest here. Even when he launched the full-scale invasion, he said very clearly, we have no plans to annex any territory. Six months later... I'm annexing all these territories. I'm annexing all these yeah. territories. So it, it, it's, I, I must, I, you know, I, anyone who, anyone who, you know, if someone on the street says, you know, there should be peace and we should all talk to each other, I can kind of, exp I can kind of respect that in the sense that that's a, humani a humanitarian position. That's like, well, come on, nobody likes war, or at least no, no healthy person would, 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 would tolerate or support war. Um, and there's a set, there's a desire for peace, but someone who actually has knowledge of, of Russia, mm -hmm. of Russian history, of Putin, the Putin regime, who advocates for a negotiated settlement, um, I have to question their integrity. I have to question what they're really pushing for, because they must know, they must know that it's nonsense to do a deal with this man, and they must know what his agenda is, and they, and they must know where it will lead. Well, I think that, you know, everybody is a pacifist on paper until war comes to them, right? I think, uh, well, before 2014, I was an immense pacifist. I did not understand why weapons exist, and I didn't like people who preferred to have guns in their houses for safety or something like that. And here I am advocating for more weapons, explosives, and missiles to Ukraine, right? Because... At the point at which you get invaded and you see your friends die at the front lines and you understand that there is just no other solution other than defeating the enemy, I think pacifism gains a very new meaning for you. That's what I was talking a little bit about earlier, where I think there is a very misguided understanding of peace in a lot of uh, Western minds, because lack of military action doesn't mean peace. Particularly with Putin and Russia, lack of military action is 
just that. It's just lack of military action. But these territories that they took over daily, they set up these filtration camps, torture chambers, they uh, imprison people for speaking Ukrainian, they indoctrinate children, they erase uh, the history books, they burn museums of Ukrainian heritage and history and culture because they simply don't want Ukraine and Ukrainians to exist. And they basically re-educate people. So I wouldn't, for me personally, correct me if I'm wrong, that is not peace. That is a torturous existence just without military action. Well, it's a genocide. It's essentially, it's a genocide. Yeah. It's a genocidal policy, um, and it's becoming more and more widely recognised. I think when the, when the war first began, um, I remember I, I, pub, I remember publishing in the first days an article saying what we have now is a blueprint for genocide. Essentially, yeah. Russia's the propaganda position of Russia that Ukraine does not exist. And the way it's structured and the way that this is Russia, so anyone who supports Ukraine is an enemy of Russia and that is, that is, the, that is the enemy position, was, was essentially a, an invitation for genocide. And, and it's, it's proceeded along, those, along, along in that trajectory, um, probably more than even my, my worst uh, case scenario at the time. And that's been something that people now recognise. I mean, I think we it takes the, the thing is with genocide, it takes a long time to prove mm. it. It's a very, very high benchmark to to determine officially, legally, def definitively that genocide has taken place. But a lot of serious uh, specialists, historians, and specialists in, in in genocide are now saying that this is a clear genocide that we're seeing. We have UN officials who are saying like that the Russian media is possibly or probably guilty of inciting genocide. Mm. Um, Vladimir Putin has now had a, a, an arrest warrant issued by the International Criminal Court in The Hague specifically for a crime which is one of the five points of genocide, taking children and, in, and, and indoctrinating them, taking them from the group by Ukrainians and indoctrinating them. That is, that is one of five genocidal acts as defined by the United Nations uh, Genocide Convention. So this is clearly what's going on and that you're quite right that that is not peace and, and the people in Ukraine who are on the other side of the front lines now are already already exposed to that. The idea of leaving them there is, is, is unacceptable, I think, for any Ukrainian. It should be unacceptable for the international community. But again, you know, what I was saying earlier, I don't think it's enough just to appeal to people's humanity for their support. We've got to appeal to their sense of self-preservation, that yeah, this is going you. to affect you. This is not just something that you should do because it's a nice moral thing, because there's a lot of bad things happening in the world. Of course. You know, and a lot of people are going to say, well, yeah, okay, there's a lot of bad things happening here, there and everywhere. I don't want it to disrupt my life. That's, that's the nature of, of, of humanity, unfortunately. Uh, so I think it's very important to stress that like, this is not just a matter of being, you know, being on the right side of history as far as Ukraine's concerned. It's about securing international peace. And well, you know, the people that say uh, Putin isn't attacking us, why attack Putin or something like that, right? They, uh, they very vividly remind me of the protesters on Wall Street in World War II before America stepped in, who were carrying these uh, posters that said, Hitler didn't attack us, why attack Hitler? And anytime someone says something like that to me, I actually have that saved in my phone and I just pull it up to them <laughs> because I'm tired of explaining yeah. it because that's, it's, very, it's very similar in that way. But um, I guess a very big misconception is uh, also in the West, and you can agree or disagree with me, that helping Ukraine and provoking Putin is going to start World War III, while in reality it's letting Ukraine fall opens the door for Russia to go further and starting World War III. So I find it very interesting how so many people 
are not scared of of giving Russia all this land and all this space that is going to be bordering Europe and NATO. And once Russia enters NATO or does anything to a NATO country directly, then Article 5, which means World War Three in a way. Yeah, well, no, I mean, the, 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 the greatest problem, I mean, Putin's greatest ally over the last two years has been the West's fear of escalation. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's without any question. That's been far more important than, than Iran and Iranian drones or Chinese money or whatever anyone else has offered him. The main ally of, of, of Vladimir Putin and the Russian war is the West's fear of escalation. And that is a very, very damaging thing for Ukraine, of course, but also for the West. And, uh, and, and it, it, does, it does open the door, as you say, for a much bigger conflict. And it's foolish. You know, we see that it's not actually founded in, in logic. Russia is very clever at exposing, at playing this, at yeah. manipulating this. You know, we see they make, you know, Putin makes his um, nuclear blackmail. He makes some some very thinly veiled comments. Um, he actually hasn't done that in a while because I think the Chinese told him to stop doing that, basically. Yeah. And, and so he stopped doing that. But he still has his his uh, his guys who do it for him, his proxies, his representatives, especially Medvedev is the main one now. So he pushes him out every so often. And Medvedev just the other day again made a, a very explicit uh, nuclear threat to bomb Washington and, and, and to nuke Paris and London. Now, though his comments sound ridiculous, you know, and people tend yeah. to laugh online and say, look, oh, Medvedev's drunk again. Look at him. Oh, my God, <laughs> yeah. he's, he started early today. You know, he must have been <laughs> under vodka at breakfast. Okay, that, you know, I can see the fun in that. You know, we, you, it's important to laugh in, in, in times of great tr- stress and trauma. But actually, I think there's a very serious point here. That is not accidental. That's specifically to push the West to say, by the way, guys, we've got some crazy people here. We're pretty wild. We can do a lot of stuff. Don't take a risk. And if you yeah. do, you'll end up in trouble. But if we look at the reality of what's actually happened, every time that Russia's red lines are crossed, Russia does nothing. Does nothing. nothing. The Black Sea is the best example. The Russians have said, you know, you must never touch Crimea. Crimea is is the red line. Crimea is the jewel in the crown. It's the jewel in the crown of Putin's empire. Never touch Crimea. And a lot in the West, they didn't necessarily say it, but I'm sure behind closed doors they did. And they're saying, we don't really think about Crimea. Better not touch Crimea. Ukraine said, we're not worried. And they went in and they started sinking his fleet. And what did he do? Did he did he send? Did he start dropping out some bombs? No, he retreated. He pulled his fleet out from Sevastopol, and they went off to Russia, no, and very is. quietly. And the, and the and the Kremlin media said almost nothing about it because they were obviously told by the Kremlin, turn it down, don't mention this. We're just going to quietly retreat. You know, same thing in Kherson, same story. You know, so every time that the Ukrainians challenge these red lines and cross them and ignore them, Russia falls back. And yet the West has still got this timid approach, this, this, this fear of escalation. And it's, it's very, very problematic. Why do you think that is? Because that's what I wanted to ask you actually from the very beginning is that every time these red lines are crossed, the first red line was Western tanks. The second red line was Western jets, yeah. right? So there have been Probably oh, it goes back before that. The first red line was anything. Javelins. Was anything. <laughs> yeah. was anything. Really, it was. It yeah. was any help. And well, so you said in the first day of the war, and you, if anyone tries to interfere in any way, you will. I will nuke you. Essentially. Yeah, and yeah, then it's been two years, and about a hundred different red lines that Russia has specifically stated mm. have been crossed by the West. Yeah. Yet it seems like when Ukraine actually needs the jets and the tanks and the javelins most, the West is 
scared of escalating. And then five, six months down the line, they do uh, they do give us what we need, or they do give Ukraine what, what, what Ukraine needs. However, at that point, there are so many lives that could have been saved and so much strategy that could have been built better and so much progress that could have been made. Why do you think the West constantly falls into this trap of the fear of escalation with a man who has shown times and times again that he's a paper tiger? Well, I think there's an enormous, there's an incredibly low threshold for for risk in the West. You know, these the, we're talking about countries that have lived for three generations without war. Yeah. I mean, yes, they fought wars all over the world, especially the Americans, but also the Brits. You know, the, the, they but not at home. They they don't have any concept of their countries being at risk realistically, and and their parents didn't have any concept. They've grown up yeah. with with the with the notion of war as something you see on TV or on a cinema screen. That's a, it's a historic thing. It doesn't happen. So there's an incredibly low threshold to involve them in that. And then they see what's happening in Ukraine. On the one hand, they're absolutely horrified, legitimately horrified, genuinely, and they want to say, well, we must do something because we want to stop. But on the other hand, they're saying, my God, that could happen here. Could mm-hmm. it happen here? Well, I guess it could happen here. And even if there's a, a half percent chance, that's a half percent too much. That's such it's such a low threshold that they will not cross it. And although there's a lot of people in the West and in, in the political leadership and in, in you know the policymakers, opinion formers who recognise that now is the time, there's, a, there's also enormous pressure from the other side saying, "Don't, don't get us involved because this is just too big a risk and too terrible." Um, and so we are. This is where this is why it always involves these endless debates and 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 very damaging delays. You know, these very damaging delays. Well, Germany is stepping up quite a bit. I was honestly very surprised and I'm very grateful to uh, Scholz because from the beginning of the invasion, you know, there was this new term added, added to, well, as a joke to Oxford Dictionary and it was uh, Scholzing, mm. <laughs> which is kind of debating debating about something or promising something and then never actually uh, delivering it. And then recently he stepped up quite a bit and Germany has been one of the biggest uh, suppliers of aid to Ukraine and they they're really pushing the rest of Europe to give uh, to give Ukraine what Ukraine needs uh, specifically jets and tanks and BMPs and APCs and I think that's fantastic also Germany is remilitarizing for the first time since World War II which is something that people just tend to gloss over but it is a big deal and so is Japan so it is sort of we, we live in this time that I um kind of call the doorstep to World War III. And it's up to us and it's up to Western countries to see whether it, it will happen or not happen, depending on how they act here. Well, the German position is is probably the biggest shift we've seen since the war began, apart from what's gone actually uh, specifically here on you know, on the front lines. Um, you know, the, the, the idea of Germany being the leading European supplier of arms to Ukraine is incredible. I mean, we, everyone remembers the early days of the war when they 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 offered to send some helmets and blankets, yes. uh, and that that was Germany. Then that's what you expected. Mm-hmm. Of course, people joked about it, but that was the perception of what where yeah. Germany was at, and, and the idea that they provide more was not seen as realistic by anyone. And, and it's, it is it is incredible that they have made this turnaround, and it's a huge shift for the German public. And again, if you look at polls in Germany, it's popular. It's broadly popular. They support this. They recognize popular might not be the right word. They recognize that it is the right thing to do. Um, that's a huge, a huge, a huge shift in 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 word. You know, historic shift in where Germany is since World War II. You know, they have been the pacifist nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and although this is clearly the right thing to do, it's a huge jump for the Germans to say we're going to send tanks to Ukraine I mean that was the you know the eastern front was was the you know was the you know the the German war guilt was of course you know, 
the, the biggest portion of guilt was for the, for the Holocaust and the atrocities that took place in the camps, but also for the the atrocities that took place in, in the former Soviet Union. And, and in most German minds, that's equated with Russia. Yeah. That's, another, that's another, another barrier there that a lot of people historically in Europe, and especially Germany, have always equated the Soviet Union with Russia. So for them to again be involved in a war against Russia was seen as you know, an incredible taboo. The fact that they've been able to get over that and now are moving in, in the direction they are is, is remarkable. It is um, remarkable. It speaks, it speaks volumes of how big the changes have been over the last two years. I think especially in people's perception and, the, and in the understanding of uh, geopolitics in this scenario, because I think that Russia and Germany were very integrated. Take Angela Merkel, for instance. You know, she studied at a Russian university. She's from East Germany. Yeah. And uh, she's actually one of the biggest reasons why Ukraine is not in NATO. <laughs> and uh, I think that German politicians and Russian politicians were always very tight-knit. And there is also a huge Russian presence in Germany. They called Russland Deutsche. Mm. Uh, so I do think that their sort of information space in Germany at the beginning of the full-scale invasion was very, very much tipped towards the Russian perception because that's what they were getting uh, in mass. They have lots of Russian journalists working at Bild and Die Welt and um, all of the other publications. And now I think it's, it is Germany is probably one of the largest examples of how things have changed from February 24th till today in terms of the public reaction, in terms of the, in terms of the uh, government reaction, in terms of just the general mood in the country towards what's the right thing to do and how to act in this situation. And you're very right. I do agree with you on that. It, it is a very remo remarkable thing to see. And I honestly did not think that Germany would They kind of went from being a country who was the most influenced by propaganda in Europe, I would say, to being the country who is likely, at the moment, the least influenced by propaganda. Yeah, the German. I mean, the Russian influence in Germany, well, the Russian influence across Europe is is really is really significant. It's really it's remarkable. And uh, but Germany certainly. Yeah, I mean, you, go, you you talk about Merkel for sure. But then you got to look at Schroeder. I mean, oh, Schroeder, Schroeder is even deeper in. I mean, he's like he literally works for Putin. And and, and that, that that they do have their twelve o'clock tea time. Well, that that <laughs> speaks that 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 just you know. I, I honestly, I remember back in like was it two thousand and four or five. Speaking with German friends here, when Schroeder took the took the job in Russia, saying like, "Is that is that normal? Like, is that okay in Germany?" And even then, they were saying, "Yeah, well, you know, we've kind of got this, you know, this back to business with Germany, with Russia policy, and so it's kind of in line with that." But they were they were you know they were uneasy about it even then. And I think yeah. now we see the you know the huge folly of that. You know, people talk about Ukrainian corruption, and Ukrainian corruption is an issue that that that, that needs to be addressed and is be, is being addressed, but will you know needs to be addressed for, for many decades to come, no doubt. But yeah, of course. You know, we're talking about former heads of state who are openly working for the Kremlin. I mean, how much more corruption can you get? I mean, how much more, how, exactly. how much bigger can corruption become than when your national leaders are being paid publicly to lobby for the Kremlin? I would also argue that, uh, I mean, certainly that corruption in Ukraine is a very large issue. I, I always comment on this because I think that it's so easy to misinterpret. I do think that we have a lot of corruption and that we do work on it, and we certainly have a long way to go. I'm very pleased to see how much, I think that there is so much talk about corruption because of how hard we are fighting it at the moment. But I do also think that corruption goes back to sort of the Soviet Union and how it functioned, and a lot of people that worked in that time and sort of their 
proteges and also the Kremlin are one of the largest reasons that corruption prospered in Ukraine so much because those were the trainers, you know, <laughs> and their proteges were installed here to do it. Corruption was it was a tool. I mean, it's a very, it's very easy. Corruption is a very convenient thing. You know, corruption is often you know the the whole, the whole notion of corruption, as in you have a system that works, and then there's some elements of corruption. In, in many aspects, in many respects, the corruption was the system in Ukraine and, in, and throughout the Soviet Union uh, because it works very well. It's very, it's much easier to to just bribe people and pay people off and have people being, you know, accepting yeah. backhanders all over, and then and then they're all they're all and they have them all vulnerable to possible prosecution if they step out of line. That's like that's very good for discipline and it's very good for 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 getting people to be. Yeah, for creating vested interests and getting people engaged, sure. it works well, and and that that was you know the Russians have applied that model to a lesser extent, but across across Europe and, and throughout the West, you know they use they use money very effectively to to buy people to buy interest groups, and we're seeing that now that there is a there is a sort of recognition in the West that we have a Russia problem. Um, yes. they're they're finding people all the time. They're finding information operations they're digging stuff out and they're only really it's only the tip of the iceberg wait till they start digging into all the funding of all the far right parties all the far oh, left okay. parties anyone who somehow anyone who destabilizes the west in any form but especially the far right they if they you know, dig deep enough into that and and the you know the, the russian roots the amount of russian money there the amount of russian influence is going to be colossal you know and, and we can look at you know election interference you know, social media across the board I think one of the one of the problems is uh, how little awareness people in the West, not that they have to have awareness, because I, I can't imagine where they would get it from, especially because, you know, materials about Ukraine and what's been happening to Ukraine and smaller countries have been only sort of accessible to academia and everything about Russia is accessible everywhere. For instance, all of the journalists at large publications who have been sent by the Russian government to work there and the government formed connections for them and the government put them in the spotlight all of the uh, Russian cultural centers everywhere around the world. Ukraine doesn't have money to build all of those. Neither were we focusing on that. We were fo focusing on like developing ourselves as a country, right? And one of the most interesting things that I think is uh, Russian professors in the academia and the my favorite faculty in every top of the line university is the faculty of the Eastern European Studies. Can someone explain to me what Eastern European Studies are? Because there's so many different countries in Eastern Europe that are unique, but they're all studied under the veil of Russia. I was going to say, Eastern European Studies is just Russian studies. Yeah, That's what always. it means. That's what it means, essentially, in, in, in the current um, academic parlance. It's, it's essentially uh, Russia, the same as Slavonic Studies. We have in Britain Slavonic Studies, it's Russian Studies. And so everything is viewed through a Russian prison and... Um, that's been the case for a long time and it's gone under the radar and it's only now that we have this, you know, the drama and the horror of this war that people are now starting to, to ask questions. And, and thankfully, in the last couple of years, a, a, a handful of universities have opened up Ukrainian studies yes. courses, which is, it's, it's, it's a small thing at this point, but it's a very welcome trend because the ignorance of Ukraine or, you know, ignorance perhaps is a too, too judgmental word, but lack of awareness of Ukraine internationally is a big factor behind this war in the sense that it, it created it laid the it created the, the you know the, the it set the stage for all of Russia's propaganda because people knew nothing about it and Russia came out with you know bucket loads of, of lies 
And a lot of it's stuck because people are like, well, we don't really know. Well, I guess, you know, if Russia's prepared to go to such lengths, there must be some truth in it. You know, there's always this sense with Russia that there must be some truth in what they say. They can't just be lying. Surely, surely a country as famous and wealthy and, and powerful as Russia can't just sit there and tell total lies. I mean, that's, that's insane. You know, all politicians distort the facts and then twist the truth and, and, and spin, as we say. Yeah. But the idea that they simply make stuff up, that they just make things up, is, is difficult to grasp for Westerners because we have this concept of Russians as part of the, if not the Western world, the European civilization, And it's actually, it, it, it's, it's a kind of inverse form of racism or a peculiar form of racism because Russians look like Europeans and historically they've been considered part of this broader European civilization. Um, they, are, they are assumed to be to have the same values or to have the same rationality as us in the in a way that is not applied to China or mm -hmm. to 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 the, the states of the Middle East, Arabian countries, Saudi mm -hmm. Arabia, for example, or India, for example, or any other regions of the world. But for Russia, we assume oh, they they, they must have, they must work along the same sort of broad rationality as the West, and that's not true. It's never been true, arguably. It's certainly not true now, and it's a real stumbling block to understanding where they're coming from. Well, it's also right. It's it's one of those things where Russia, as I mentioned earlier, under Peter the First, made itself into Russia, and the country was built and named and created, or the empire, on a lie and on sort of uh, appropriating a lot of history and culture of neighboring empires and countries that have succeeded before it. So, we, or rather the West, knows Russia as this big country with ballet and scientists and great writers. Meanwhile, a lot of these writers were from Kazakhstan and Ukraine and Belarus and other places, and they have just been sent and shipped to Moscow and appropriated. Like Hohol, for example, everybody knows him as a Russian writer and painter, and he was the ambassador of Ukrainian uh, culture to Tsarist Russia. But yeah. Russian writer. Well, well, is the classic example of this, yeah. Yes. There's many more. Oh, so many more. I One of my favorite ones was I was looking up a... Um, I forgot what the name of the figure was, but it was a historical figure. And it says, a Russian imperial figure of Ukrainian Cossack descent. And he was one of the last Ukrainian Cossack hegemons. But Russian imperial figure... <laughs> well, this is, well, again, this is, this is a trend we're seeing over the last two years. We're seeing people addressing museums in the West and saying, okay, this picture you have here of the Russian whatever is actually Ukrainian, or this, mm -hmm. this, this ballet that you perform, or this song that you sing, or whatever it may be, these are actually this is Ukraine's cultural heritage. And we're just at the very beginnings of this. I mean, this is one of the many, many very, you know, very profound impacts of this war, is the fact that the world is learning about Ukraine and is starting to understand exactly what you're talking about, that a lot of the things that they assume were were Russian are in fact part part of Ukraine's cultural heritage uh, that have been that have been taken by the Russians and, and and the Russians are you know the Russians just assumed that was okay that was normal that's just that's just what they did you know, their empire was a very different empire like the British had a, a vast empire but Britain mm -hmm. didn't say that you know Indian curry was English they said oh it's, it's Indian curry you know and we have Indian restaurants we don't call them English restaurants it's not English curry it's Indian curry yeah. for example you know and there's obviously many many examples like that uh, whereas in Russia it was like well you're Russians now this is part of our this is part of our yeah. world now but you're you're Russians but you're so but also you you're never regarded as highly as Russians because you're sort of like the second class of Russians so you have to identify with the Russian culture and deem yourself Russian but you but you won't necessarily be deemed as highly as your typical 
Russian in society. Well, no, I don't know. I, don't, I can't agree with that. If they, if they, if they did, if they did integrate, if they did accept Russian identity, Ru- the U- Ukrainians rose to the very, very top of the oh, empire. Oh no, of course, very, Khrushchev, very for instance, in yeah. the Soviet Union, he Soviet was Ukrainian. Empire. Also, in the Czarist times, you know, some of the top officials were were you know, Ukrainians. Yeah, of course. Well, if they Sovietized themselves they, and, they, ga- and gave they, up yeah. all of their identity and yeah. became Russian, but if uh, you know, if you chose to keep Ukrainian as your nationality and your passport, that wouldn't happen. As in the Soviet Union, you had nationalities written in your passport yeah. specifically for this lovely little discrimination rule. And uh, yeah, Russia is very interesting like that. Would you agree with me? Uh, So I always say, and this is my perception, is that the Russian Empire never collapsed. It just lost some territory and renamed itself to the Soviet Union and proceeded with different leadership. And then uh, the Soviet Union never really collapsed. It lost some territory and renamed itself into the Russian Federation. Well, I mean, would I agree? I think Vladimir Putin would agree. It's the most important thing. I mean, he clearly agrees. He has said publicly on a number of occasions, the Soviet Union was the Russian Empire. And the land that we're retaking now is Russian land from the Russian Empire. So this is, a, this is a, I, mean, I, I think it was, I, I think the particular quote I'm referring to was just before the, inv- the full-scale invasion in, in the end of 2021, when he said, the Russian Empire, you know, the, the Soviet Union was the Russian Empire, and it was the collapse of a thousand years of Russian history. So again, they're 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 annexing Ukrainian history there or, or Rus history, but this is a very clear line. They this is you know, their understanding is that this empire has been a, continu- a continuous empire. There's no there's no definitive break. There's no, again, if we look at other empires, they don't have that mentality. You know, mm-hmm. the, with the Russian Empire, because it's a continuous block of land, also plays a role here. I think they weren't just dotted around the world; it was a continuous block. So it, it gets bigger, it gets smaller, but it still very much exists. And uh, one, you know, one of the reasons why we're seeing the war, I think, is because a because Putin wants to to reclaim Ukraine, but mm-hmm. b he also is very much aware very much aware that if Ukraine's transition to a European democratic model becomes further consolidated, becomes even more successful, that will trigger the next round of the Russia's retreat from empire. And we will see other regions within Russia saying, well, Ukraine was, was part of the Russian empire for, for, for you know, hundreds of years. It's pretty much the heartlands. Mm-hmm. And they've moved on and they've made a success. So why don't we do that? And then the whole imperial, the whole... Uh, the whole empire then starts to come apart at the seams. And I think that's ultimately what they fear, first and foremost. You know, Putin's a man whose entire political life, you know, his, 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 you know, the, the, his political worldview was formed during the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that's something that, that, that still haunts him. You know, Ukraine for him is, it's all about that. And he's watched it happen in Germany, so he wasn't there and he also couldn't do anything about it. He was on it. the front lines and he saw it happen and there's that famous quote, Moscow was silent, you know, he said, he's there and, and, and now, you know, I think one of his defining, one of his, one of his guiding lights is this idea, Moscow will never be silent. We will never be silent again. And if we have to drown the whole world in blood, it doesn't matter because we cannot be silent because that will be, that's the retreat, you know, that, you know the, the, the speed with which the Soviet Union retreated in the late 1980s, early 1990s was, was, astounding astonishing you know you had this you had at the time you know one of the biggest if not the biggest empires the world had ever seen yeah. and within the space of a few years without any major wars it was reduced by around i don't know 40 percent perhaps 30 30 40 percent um population wise probably halved and then that you know they know that could happen he, he's very you know very much aware that can happen again
Well, the Soviet Union was broke, which is why I think he's uh, he is so adamant about uh, continuing uh, selling oil and stealing Ukrainian grain and importing uh, sort of like, you know, doing these sneaky imports and uh, evading sanctions. Because one of the reasons why the Soviet Union couldn't do anything is because, well, Gorbachev wasn't a strong leader in that sense. And also because they did not, they simply lacked money to to keep all of these countries from coming out of the Soviet Union and, and dictating their own rules and regulations now. So I think he's very scared of these mistakes being repeated. And I do agree with you that he's scared that Ukraine is going to uh, go further west in terms of the mindset and in terms of uh, our behavior and sort of our societal Comp uh, composition. And I think that he's seeing it now too, which is very evident in how much more efficient his propaganda has become. There are two types of propaganda that come out from Russia in terms of Ukraine. One is meant for the West and uh, and one is meant for Ukrainians, because what I think Russia understood recently is that they can't take down our government, but we can. And what I, what I see happening is they used to put out the propaganda into the Ukrainian society the same way that they put it out onto Russians. And it wasn't working. It was failing miserably and everybody was laughing at it because Ukrainians would see right through it and be like, this is terrible Russian propaganda. And they have recently, about maybe six to eight months ago, realized, I think, that they need to see Ukrainians the same way as they see the West and they need to see Ukrainians the same way as they see the Europeans and put out the propaganda in a similar format. And I see a lot of tensions in the Ukrainian society now that Russia puts out this propaganda that's aimed at sort of us rising and us um, figuring out our internal issues. And it's it's very interesting because on the one hand, you see that he's scared, but on the other hand, he's finally figured it out and it's kind of effective. Well, Russia is, the, is, is a superpower in two areas. Uh, one is its nuclear arsenal, which it realistically will have very great difficulty using but it has it and the other area is propaganda probably i would say the russians are the masters are probably the best in the world um you know very little else actually works in russia if you look at russian society you look at the standard you know, the general standard of living the uh, average life expectancies you know any any major indicator mm -hmm. it's clear that this is not a thriving thriving country um but the information sphere the propaganda sphere is just absolute i mean i have to legitimately say objectively it's superb i mean it's brilliant it it's brilliantly done uh, they are you know they're probably the world's best liars um, and they do it in it they do it very clearly not i mean you're quite right that they, they do it they tailor it for a ukrainian audience west ukrainian audience south ukrainian east ukrainian kiev middle class upper class lower class yeah. take your pick they, they they tailor it right down and they do the same thing in germany they do the same thing in england in france american audiences you know Black Americans, urban Americans, Midwest Americans—all mm -hmm. the different categories are there. You know, they they have an incredibly sophisticated um, disinformation industry that I don't think anyone in the world could compete with. Because you know, we have in the West, of course, very very sophisticated media, but we don't have state media that is as broad as as, as mm -hmm. well developed as 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 as, as uh, you know as, as well evolved for these purposes because they're all private most of them are private enterprises yeah. um, and they have their own very specific uh, sort of watchdogs and controls and market forces as well whereas in Russia there's none of that and so they have this in entire sector where and everyone plays along you know if you look at the Russian media in Russia itself where it all began I mean this is where they learned their their trade is in Russia itself you know there's not you know yes they kill journalists 
but they don't kill most journalists. It's not like every yeah. journalist has a gun to their head. 99% of the people working in the Russian media do so voluntarily. And they're good at it and they know what they're doing and they do they it. Get paid they do very it well for it. They get too. paid. Uh, some of them do. Most of them don't. But they do it because that's just the way that that's the, they're, they're encouraged to believe that, you know, cynically that everyone does it. And they feel that that's just, that's just the way things are. But they know what they're doing and they do it very well. And once in a while, they'll pick someone out and make an example of them. And that's enough. You know, Stalin would kill a thousand people. Putin will kill one person, but make an example of them, make sure everyone sees it and everyone got, gets the memo, as it were, and so they don't step out of line. And he's been very successful in that. It's also, uh, you said they tailor propaganda to everyone. That's that's why um, their propaganda often contradicts itself. Because we as people, as humans in general, tend to avoid information we disagree with and forget it very easily. So, for instance, when they push out these contradicting statements every day to the Russian society, they're aimed at different classes and at different uh, populations of Russians. And uh, we look at it from the West and we're like, how do they believe this? There are all of these 55 different stories about the same thing and none of them match, right? Well, it's because when you read it in... Um, Kamchatka, one of those 55 options is going to resonate with you. And that's the one that you are going to remember. And that's kind of how their propaganda also works worldwide. You know, when we laugh at Putin saying uh, 55 different reasons why he invaded Ukraine, because it's that propaganda technique where it, it wants to resonate with you. And he will continue saying whatever it is and, until you watch him and you're like, oh, that that makes sense. Or... Or there's also, I think there's also an argument for saying don't believe anything. There's also a very yeah. powerful, you know, that's a very popular tool of, of, of dictators saying, well, just, you know, yeah, don't do. believe in anything because it's all nonsense. And the, the cynicism that you see in the West as well, you know, there's a very, you know, there's a, there's a very strong undercurrent that maybe even, you know, approaching, you know, not maybe not majority, but a very large consolidated minority who reject all mainstream media now in the West. And that's also, and, and they are by, by, you know, by no coincidence, they are also, the the sort of bedrock of support for Russia and Putin. Yeah, they are. They're the guys who like Putin. The guys who say they can't trust the mainstream media, but we'll trust Putin. And it's mm -hmm. like, how how could do you know anything? Do you know anything about Putin? Like he's the the ultimate in, in, in propaganda regime. But somehow they feel that that is uh, a sort of um, contrarian position to adopt. Well, the mainstream media also fell into Putin's trap as well and helps him uh, to lead people to distrust uh, to distrust them because they publish a lot of contradicting opinions from journalists and a lot of those journalists are Russian and the journalists have been working there for 20 years and therefore it's unimaginable to think that they have been sent there by the Kremlin to specifically tailor propaganda. Uh, I'm not going to mention names, but there are uh, journalists working at the New York Times and at Washington Post and at the time who have written very, very, very... Uh, I would say propaganda on steroids, pieces about Ukraine, like civil war, how Russia is going to intervene and help, how there are Ukrainians screaming for help from Russia who want to be Russian. And then, uh, and that was coming, and that was happening up until the 22nd of February. And then right after the 24th, it switched to Zelensky, the hero of the people. And now it's slowly being reintegrated back into the narrative about Ukrainians being you know, they're losing and state Ukrainian propaganda is mis misinterpreting things, it's wishful thinking, Zelensky is in too deep and took on way too much. And people believe these journalists because, well, the, but they've been naming Zelensky person of the year and saying all of these fantastic things about him before. Yeah, but I feel like if they weren't, they'd be fired and they wouldn't be able to have this position now, right? 
Well, I mean, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, insinuate that people are, you know, like sleeper agents or something. I think there's, there's, it's a, a lot of it's opinion. A lot of it's just that's the way of they, course. that's, that's the way they, they, they were brought up to believe. You know, if you are, if you're brought up in an environment where Ukraine is not considered a country since you were a small child, that's the, that's your reality. It's very easy for you then to, to repeat narratives that are quite close to the Kremlin's because you genuinely believe that. That's, that's just the way you are. Um, I think one of the big problems in terms of the international coverage of Ukraine has been the tendency, which is still, but much less now since, since over the last two years, to cover Ukraine via Moscow. This was a huge, yes. huge problem um, because the correspondence in Moscow would would very typically be. I mean, first of all, they're in Moscow. They are by definition dependent on the Kremlin for their accreditation, i.e., their job, and they can have that taken away at any moment. So they know where the unspoken red lines are, and they know what they can and can't do. Um, and then also, you add in the factor that they spend all their time in an environment talking to Russians, um, that they in many in many in many in many instances have a Russian wife or Russian girlfriends. Russian friends, Russian colleagues. So everything they know about Ukraine is coming through this prison. And then when they come to Ukraine and encounter a totally different reality, they then would report typically something that was like, well, this is what is happening in Ukraine as I see it. And then they would include all the Russian stuff for balance because that's what they came, that's the baggage they already had. And that's the stuff that they know they're obliged to put. And that's what they, and, and actually in fairness, that's what they legitimately think they should put as an objective journalist because that is their, that's the broader view. You know, they don't have, a, they, don't, they, don't, they can't detach themselves. And a very interesting thing happened before the war began, that when Joe Biden began saying very publicly that the invasion's coming, there was a massive influx of journalists to Kiev from like December 2021 until the invasion. All the hotels here were full of international journalists. There'd never been anything like so many journalists here, not during Euromaidan or the Orange Revolution, never anything like it. So you had this massive influx of journalists and the vast majority of them had no connection to this part of the world at all. They weren't from Moscow. And mm -hmm. that's when, you know, you, you say the, 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 um, you know, the coverage changed in, in, on, on you know, 24th of February. Yeah. I would say actually that coverage changed in the months before that because mm -hmm. you had all these journalists all of a sudden reporting on Ukraine and the build-up to the potential war who were not coming with the baggage from Moscow. And that was the big that was the big uh, watershed moment where the, where the perceptions changed because they were just reporting honestly of what they saw and they mm -hmm. didn't feel the need to include all these Russian narratives. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was very helpful. And I think that was one of the big pushes that helped us introduce our stories the way that we see them, not the way that Russia sees them. But there are still quite a few journalists and quite a few uh, academics that have studied um, Eastern European studies, which aka Russia and mm -hmm. Moscow and have never been to Kyiv, but now suddenly have become experts on Ukraine because, well, they've studied Eastern European studies and now they write opinion articles and educate people on Ukraine without actually having as much knowledge on Ukraine as they do on Russia. And their, and their uh, teachings of Ukraine are very much through a Russian prism and through their baggage of, of knowing Russia. But I do, uh, I really do appreciate how many journalists uh, actually came here and started listening to the Ukrainian perspective. And I find that a lot of the people who report on Ukraine from the West, report who support Ukraine, do not completely change their opinion and see it through the Ukrainian eyes until they come to Kyiv. But once they do, there is no going back because it's almost like a whole different world opens to them, uh, opens to them because they've now been here and they really, really do not have any more sort of questions or any more... Um, 
are any more things that they're unsure about because they meet Ukrainians, they speak to Ukrainians, they see the life here, they see that there is not even a semblance of of anybody wanting to be anywhere near Russia, whether they're Russian-speaking or Ukrainian-speaking or German-speaking or English-speaking, you know. And uh, I think that's beautiful in a way, and that's something that I never thought I would see uh, happen because as someone who's lived abroad for so long and watched the coverage of my country through the lens of Americans from 2014 and on, it it was very difficult to watch because it was being portrayed as a civil war in Ukraine and Russia was portrayed as the big great hope for Ukraine that came in to help the Russian speakers who were suffering so much. And all of the historians and politicians and everyone was explaining it through the prism of them having spoken to people in Moscow. Well, it's a long it's a long process. You know, you're talking about changing perceptions that have taken root decades ago, in some cases, centuries ago. And it's very difficult to sort of pull people back and say, okay, all this is, is not accurate. This is not accurate. We've got to start again. And, and you know, it, this is just the very, very beginning of that process. We're going to be having conversations like this for many, many years to come. And that's that's the reality of the situation. You know, and Russia Russia is a huge, very significant country in, in global affairs, has been for centuries probably will be for centuries, perhaps less so, I would imagine, frankly. But it's not going to go away entirely, again, unless there's a major shift. You know, it could collapse, you never know. But, um, it, 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 well, <laughs> but, um, but, but frankly, you know, the, in all likelihood, it will, it will be there. And, then, you know, that's a huge shadow it has and a huge influence. So it's a long road and it's going to take time. I think you've got to be patient. And I say, I, you know, I understand that this, this is an issue, this coverage is an issue, but... I, I also have a lot of respect for all the journalists who are trying to cover, and I think that you know, ninety ninety five percent of them are legitimate people trying to do a, a good job and, and are conscientious and are trying to do the right thing. Um, they're trying to be objective. Uh, a lot of them have a lot of baggage, and a lot, a lot of it is subconscious. They're not necessarily doing it on on purpose. They're trying to portray things as they see. They don't want to get pulled one way or the other. And if they see things are are, are very clearly, you know, that a lot of people have described the. The, the current war is like the most black and white moral issue since 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 World War II. You know, I'd be inclined to agree, but I think if you're an outside journalist, it's very difficult to to take that because you say, well, is anything is anything as black and white as that? You know, and people people are, are instinctively, I think journalists especially, are instinctively inclined to say, no, let's dig a bit deeper, let's let's try and add a little bit extra balance. But it's very difficult to provide balance when one side just lies. All the time. Yeah, that's the thing. It's it's one of the most black and white things that one has ever seen. I um, An example to that is, you know, Ukrainians very often say, stop looking for good Russians. And the world keeps trying to find good Russians. And it's just, <laughs> it's just such a black and white. It's interestingly, it continues to become more and more black and white and have more and more of these of this very clear border for instance i was a fan of nimtsov who was the russian oppositioner because i thought that he was truly one of the most unique people who did have a very different opinion until i stumbled upon a his interview from 2014 where he was saying that well crimea can't be returned to ukraine if i was president because it's not like World War II Germany. Germany lost a war, and he was basically denying that Ukraine was was in war and kind of trying to deviate from the question and say that, you know, these are just not the same things because Russia is not Germany. 
And it's so interesting because every single time that you think maybe it's not so black and white, you just get slapped in the face with the fact that it is. Well, you know, there are there are many, many good Russians. There are millions of good Russians. And, there, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the people who are being, um, you know, a lot of the people who've been deported to Russia and have managed to escape have done so because they've been helped by Russians who've come out and, and, and at great risk to themselves, provided support, financial or, or, or physical, just simply driving people, whatever. Um, you know, so there's a, there, there are, there are, you know, there are, there are good and bad people everywhere. But in terms of political culture, I don't think there's anyone who could expect to have any success in Russia at all by saying, you know, let's stop being Russia. You know, <laughs> and Russia is an empire, you know, and you can't get away from that. Now, the Russian politician who's able to gain popularity by saying, let's become a normal country and abandon all that, I, I don't. I don't see that happening. I mean, I don't know if that's if that's even 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 vaguely feasible. I mean, essentially, he's got to say, let's go back to being, you know, the the, the Grand Duchy of Moscovy or whatever. Let's <laughs> let's abandon Siberia. Let's abandon uh, you know, the Kavkaz or whatever. Um, that's a very difficult proposition, and you see that you know, with Nemtsov. You see that with with Navalny, um, with all these sort of saviors. Um, virtually all of them have been found out in that manner, you know, where they've mm. been pressed on specific issues of, uh, of, of, of not being imperialistic in Ukraine. And they've, they've sort of backed away from it and said, well, I don't know, you know, let's, you know, they don't want to give specific answers because that would basically just condemn them. They said, no, no, Russians, because the, the Russian, yeah, the Russian public, broadly speaking, is, 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 is you know, accepts this, this worldview, this imperialistic identity. They accept it as, 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 you know, as, as one might accept the fact that it's raining or snowing or sunny. It's just, it's just, a, it's a force of nature. Imperialism is really ingrained yeah. in Russians, which is why I, I, fi uh, I find it difficult to show and explain to a lot of people in the West that even if you change Russian leadership, even if Putin dies today and you change the leadership, it's not going to really do anything immediately because it's all of Russia. It's just the way that people are used to thinking and living and how they've been brought up and what's been ingrained in them for centuries at this point. So it's it's a much more complex issue than just changing Putin for whoever else. It's more of like, how do you change the society to understand what they have done to other countries and how, th have they, how they have been treating their neighbors and how they have been overstepping everyone's boundaries. And that's kind of the issue that we're going to be facing uh, very soon. And um, I want to shift the subject a little bit to an op-ed that you wrote, because we have been talking about the political um, aspect of the, pa the past two years and how things have changed. There is this word that's been floating around a stalemate. And you wrote this op-ed about Black Sea and how Ukraine is going to win in it. Do you agree with the word stalemate? And if you don't, could you elaborate? Um, well, I mean, I think stalemate implies nothing is happening. I mean, it implies a kind of like a deadlock. And that's not the case, unfortunately. I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of people are dying on, an, on a daily basis. So it's just, uh, in that sense, it's about as far from a stalemate as you can get. However, if you look at the map, of Ukraine, mainland Ukraine, you'll see that the you know the bound you know, the front lines of the war have barely moved since the liberation of Kherson, which is almost a year and a half ago now. Um, so, in that sense, in a purely military sense, we can talk about a, a deadlock at least. 
but it's a it's a bloody deadlock. It's a deadlock with 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 massive amounts of fighting going on on a daily basis. Uh, the figures that were coming out of Avdiivka, you know, and and you know, again, we got to bear in mind these are small towns. I mean, these are not big cities. Avdiivka was a was a, was a town of, of thirty thousand people. That's a small mm. provincial town, and uh, you know, we are led to believe by the, from you know, unofficial Russian sources that they lost you know between you know, upwards of sixteen thousand soldiers to take that territory uh, in a few months you know staggering numbers so th that that is that is a, that is a you know that's a that's the high that's the most intense war that europe's seen since world war Two. you know so that's yeah. a long way away from sort of perceptions of what a stalemate is so but there needs to be new there clearly needs to be new approaches militarily to break through that there are there is a there is a block there but i think the black sea is interesting because it shows what can be achieved when the West does give Ukraine uh, the weapons it needs, even if not in the quantities it needs. I mean, yeah. what we, all that we had there, you know, the Ukraine's breakthrough in the Black Sea was achieved, A, because the West, i.e. France and Britain, gave Ukraine uh, cruise missiles, the Storm Shadow missiles and the French, the French variant. Um, in, in not, not in huge numbers, but in enough numbers for them to, to begin uh, a campaign of, of, of airstrikes they were able to sink numerous ships. They, the first Ukraine became the first country ever to destroy a, a, sub, a nuclear submarine with a, with a cruise missile. Uh, they bombed the Black Sea Fleet headquarters uh, and partially destroyed it. Uh, and that was possible with a limited number of, of Western missiles. Now, if you if you ex extrapolate that and imagine that they got a lot more of the long-range missiles they wanted to get that they've been asking for, you can imagine what they could achieve with that. And also, then you have the Ukrainian drones. You know, the drones that Ukraine developed that they managed to, these. Um, uh, these marine drones, which are, as far as I understand, basically jet skis, yes. but they work. And, and that's, again, yeah, so you've got, you've got Western weapons, you've got Ukrainian ingenuity, Ukrainian boldness of, of decision-making and saying, we're not going to worry about escalation, we're going to go in and attack. They did it very effectively. When the war began in the Black Sea, Russia blockaded the ports. Russia had a, a massive fleet. Ukraine didn't have a navy, still doesn't really have a navy. Two uh, ships? Do you mind uh, yeah. Okay, I mean, <laughs> yeah, some people say if you can't say they don't have a navy. I say, come on, they don't have a navy. We I mean, don't have yeah, a navy. Yeah, but I, mean, you I, think, know. I think, I think, you know, in a broad sense, it, it is accurate to say that. Um, no, it, it absolutely but, is. I but, just thought it'd be a great at joke. The, at the beginning, at the beginning of the war, you know, that was that was a, that was a foregone conclusion. The yeah. Russians have locked down the Black Sea, and that's done. Now, ports are open. The trade has, has, has resumed to almost pre-war levels. The Russian Black Sea Fleet has been pushed out of, you know, away from the Ukrainian coastline, away from Crimea. They're building a new port now. They're going to build a new port in, in occupied Georgia, like as far away from Ukraine as they can yeah. possibly get, which implies that they don't expect to come back anytime soon. They understand that, you know, and again, this is Crimea we're talking about here. This is the jewel in the crown. So um, it shows what can be achieved. It shows, A, what can be achieved. It shows that the Russians will just retreat if they have to, if they face, you know, unfavorable military realities so if you if you translate that to the land war in terms of giving ukraine what it needs i think there's every chance that ukraine can break through and achieve uh, you know very significant successes you know how how to what extent that will be that's that's something we'll have to wait and see but the, you know the nature of warfare is changing so fast now yeah. so so rapidly that um it, it, it is it is almost tempting fate or it's foolhardy to sort of talk about stalemates in the sense of like, oh, well, it's done, nothing's going to happen because things are happening so fast and changing so fast that you never know which way it's going to go. And, and it really is, you know, it's absolutely incumbent on the West to make sure that Ukraine can stay ahead technologically at least and, and give them the, you know, the tools to get this done.
There is so much that happened in the past two years and in the past 10 years, even if we look back at Russia's original invasion of Ukraine. And Ukraine has come so far and the world has come so far in understanding Ukraine and understanding Russia and in helping Ukraine. What do you think the West needs to do and what the Ukrainians need to do to keep breaking through and to tip this war into our favor and win it? Uh, well, I, I think that the, the, the technological aspect is going to be absolutely crucial now. Uh, we, we've talking about a, a, you know, this is going to be probably the last war where we see, you know, large scale artillery and tanks and, and, and um, armored troop carriers and all the, all the acriments of war that we're, that we're familiar with from, from the last, you know, 50 or even 100 years. The wars of the future are going to be much more drone orientated, um, you know, and that is going to, that, that's, that's key. That's already clear. We're already seeing that transition happening. You know, wars always are sort of engines of, of progress, although that's a, you yeah. know, in, 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 in a, you know, obviously in a very, that's a very cynical thing to say, perhaps, but it's a fact. If you look it historically, the, you know, the great leaps forward in, 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 in civilization tend to Happen. come from periods of warfare because, you know, the, the world, World War One is the most obvious one where, you know, you go into World War One, there's a, you know, guys are, guys are, you know, parading around on horses with plumed hats and, you know, regalia and stuff. We come out of World War One, there's tanks, airplanes, mm -hmm. you know, chemical weapons, warfare, yeah. machine guns, radical change in a period of four years. And we're in that sort of transitional period now again. So it's very important for the West. Yes, of course, Ukraine needs artillery shells. Ukraine needs tanks. Ukraine needs bullets, um, all those things still. But I think most of all, they need to get, they need to harness the technological advantages that the West has, overwhelming advantages that they have in terms of their, you know, the digital technologies and the drone technologies and all, all the, across the board to make sure that they stay ahead of Russia, uh, which is also no slouch technologically, yeah. um, but they can stay ahead and they have the skill to do it. The Ukrainians themselves have the skill to do it if the West helps them with the tools. And we're seeing that now, you know, this last few months, there've been announcement after announcement that we're going to give them drones. We're going to give them these drones. We're going to give those drones. Drone coalition being set up here. Um, the the French just announced a few days ago, they're going to give Ukraine uh, some prototype drones that no one else has yet. Mm -hmm. And they specifically said, in the French report specifically said that they doing it because they can test them here. So there's advantages for the West in a, pra you know, in a very practical sense, apart from the fact that it's in their interest to help Ukraine win, they also get to develop their, you know, make sure their military technologies are the best. That's for sure. I think that Ukraine has become a testing ground for a lot of different things. Unquestionably. And of course, another field that's going to prevail after the war is engineering, because there's so much rebuilding that needs to be done. So it's not just in the technological and military aspect. Well, um, Thank you so much for joining me today and answering all of my questions and giving, uh, I think, the audience so much perspective on, on so much that has happened in the past two years. I think that when I reflect on what has changed, I normally never reflect on so many different areas. But looking back on this conversation today, it's it feels like it's been 20 years, <laughs> not two. That's history sometimes. Sometimes nothing happens for 20, 30 years. Sometimes everything happens in a couple. And that's where we are now, you know, and it's not something anyone would have wished for. But um, when the dust settles, we'll look back and say, my God, that was a real transitional period. We're the same. We're basically living through a similar period period of time as people in World War II lived through in terms of global change and dynamics shifting. And it's, it, I think it's cynical to say, but it's very interesting. And I, I wish it wasn't happening in the territory of my country to my people. But at the same time, I think it, it is going, when, it, when it's all over, it is going to be for the best.
Well, I think Ukraine will come out of this stronger. Um, the trauma is, is, is huge and, and, you know, of course, first and last, the, the thoughts must be with everybody who is his suffering and has suffered. But I think fundamentally Ukraine is coming out of this stronger. It's a, it's a country that now, you know, two years ago and certainly 10 years ago was very unknown in the world, was very unsure of itself in many ways. Now it's a, a much more self-confident country. It's a famous country. It's well-known. It's it's respected. It's established itself as a serious country. As a very, People recognise it's a very important country. It's strategically important. It's got a lot of value. Um, it has a very rich culture that's increasingly becoming known. And it's a very technologically advanced country. So, and, and, you know, the, there are, there are amongst, amid, amid the horror, there are pluses. For sure. It's am among the horrors that are happening here. There's certainly benefits that, well, are probably very hard to see for a lot of people in the midst of everything, but will definitely come come and turn around sometime soon, hopefully sooner than later. And I hope that we are able to win this war sooner than later. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And <laughs> thank you for giving me your time. And I really did enjoy this conversation. And I hope you know, everybody who listens to us and uh, views this enjoys it too, because I think that we've given, especially you, well, you mostly, <laughs> have given a lot of food for thought for a lot of people. And uh, I did really enjoy this chat. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm Julia Melnik, and this was our guest, Peter Dickinson. And I hope that we talked some substance into the past two years of the invasion of Russia into Ukraine and everything that's been happening around it. And I will see you next time. Mm -hmm.